Hello, and welcome to Slate Political Gab Fest. August 24th, 2023, who won the Trumpless Debate Edition? I'm David Plotz of CityCast, still in Vermont, be back in D.C. shortly. But you know who is also back is John Dickerson of CBS Primetime in New York City. Hello, John. We've missed you. Oh, and I've missed you. I feel energized. I feel alivened by being in your company because every other physiological part of me is collapsing. Oh, wow. That was dark. That's, That's not entirely true. I'm just tired. <laughs> that chuckle came from Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. Welcome back, John. This week on the GabFest, lesser Republicans debate while Trump distracts. Then does the 14th Amendment bar Trump from becoming president again? We will consider a provocative new conservative legal theory. And then a fascinating new study shows that you're very unlikely to cross paths with someone from a different economic class unless you eat at Applebee's or Olive Garden. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And we have a super exciting announcement, which is that we have a live show coming up. We are going to Madison, Wisconsin on Wednesday, October 25th. Our first show in Madison. We're really excited. I've never, it's a city I've never been to. I'm so excited to go there. We're going to be at the Majestic Theater in downtown Madison on Wednesday, the 25th of October. Show starts at 7.30. There's a VIP happy hour from 6 to 7 at the venue. So if you go to slate.com slash GabFest Live, you can get information and tickets. That's slate.com slash GabFest Live for our tickets to GabFest Live in Madison on October 25th. We really hope to see you there. Have you guys ever been to Madison? I'm very excited to go to Madison. Yes, I have been to Madison a few times, and it's lovely. It is lovely. There's Collectivo Coffee in Madison, and I still have a t-shirt from my last visit there. We're taping on Thursday morning on Wednesday night in Wisconsin, not in Madison, in Milwaukee. was the first Republican debate. Fox hosted it. Trump no-showed and did a kind of weird interview with Tucker Carlson as counter-programming. Instead, we had eight candidates led by, I never thought I'd say this, led by Vivek Ramaswamy as the clear leader of that group, I would say, or the one who gathered the most attention. So, John, give us a, situate us with this debate. What did you make of this as a first debate to kick off the campaign season? It was a great night for Donald Trump in the following ways. One, no candidate as an alternative emerged either by doing one of three things, Someone creating a critique of Trump that created an opening for any candidate to kind of come run in. In other words, you could hurt Trump, but not help yourself, but it would create better conditions for the others. That didn't happen. You could hurt Trump and create better conditions for yourself. That's a highly unlikely thing to do, and it didn't happen at the debate. Or you could be such a winning person that you would give voters in Iowa or South Carolina or New Hampshire the script so that they could say to their pal, you know, we got to stick by Trump. But I tell you what. This guy, Joe Smith, or this woman, Mary Jane, I really liked what she was saying. And then go forward about what you like about, you know, Nikki Haley or Ramaswamy or Pence or whatever. And I don't think really anybody particularly did that. So, you know, the the field is kind of a multi-candidate field, and that's great for Donald Trump, who's ahead by a million. But I think more importantly, it felt like a job interview in which there's already an internal candidate. In other <laughs> words, they go through the motions, and they go through the motions, and the questions Love seem like the metaphor. ones you'd ask. Love it. <laughs> They're just going to give it to the white guy. <laughs> and seem like the questions you'd ask people who want the job, but the person who's already got a lock, you know, has a lock. And and that that really felt that way coming through. So that's my overall assessment. Emily, what did you take away from it? Well, I was noticing the tension between standing out and then seeming kind of obnoxious versus like fading into the background. So Vivek Ramaswamy was the person who I think stood out the most. He had the most memorable lines. He also seemed very right wing, but very clear in his views. And then I thought DeSantis First, I, he seemed so loud and animated. I was just having trouble, like, having him on the screen. But then I thought he just, like, didn't really stand out, didn't answer questions clearly, right? Like, they were supposed to raise their hands about whether they believed in climate change or not, and he refused to raise his hand. And it sort of went from there in terms of not giving, like, just 
clear answers. Even on abortion, where he was defending the six-week ban in Florida, I couldn't really figure out what he was saying about his position on a national ban. And then the person who I actually thought gained, at least in my own head, was Mike Pence, which I would not have thought (laughs) going into that. He seemed less wooden than I remember him. And he has this gravitas right now because he actually like did stand up to Trump and defend the Constitution, as he said. And I thought that if you were looking for the kind of old school, not even super old school, just the sort of traditional conservative Republican, that you would pick him, that there was nobody on the stage vying for that position who had anything on him. And I I would think his numbers would go up somewhat from this debate. Just to continue on that theme, I totally agree with that. Although the other person who stood out to me in that way was Nikki Haley, who seemed just like a reasonable human being and, you know, sensible, great optics being the only woman on the stage and playing that role pretty well. And I'm sure her candidacy is going nowhere, as I'm sure Pence's candidacy is going nowhere. But I, I thought the two of them, if you were a kind of old school Reagan moderate, old school conservative, they're the ones who fill that role. But again, as we've discussed a thousand times on the show, that is an ecosystem on the brink of collapse. It is not a living ecosystem. So what does it really matter anyway? Does it matter, John, for thinking about whether some of these folks might be vice presidential fodder? I mean, I thought Haley, if that is like what this another alternative lens for viewing these eight people that they're auditioning for that role, I thought Haley was the standout on that score. Well, two things I think on the Haley front. First of all, I agree. I thought she was very, uh, very strong in a way that I actually haven't seen her be a lot in in these kinds of situations. And the same with Pence. Pence really had had uh, I don't know the old expression, and I think it probably fits because it comes from an age when the Republican Party was one in which Pence would have done well. Last night is that you know he had his Wheaties that morning. He was quite assertive and on things that in the old. Republican Party would have been received thunderous applause about standing up for the Constitution when it's under threat. I mean, that basically is about as good as you can get as a candidate trying to show that you have the qualities for the job. But the party is so different from the one that I started covering in the early 90s that it's almost like Pence and Haley, who both would appeal to that old-fashioned party, are are reenactors engaged in a replay of an old-timey thing. I mean, look, Donald Trump is a man of unfixed values. So the fact that Nikki Haley said these two things, which might hurt her with him, you know, he can do whatever he wants, and he often does. So people he hates one minute, the next minute he loves. But anyway, she did point out two rather important things. One is that in the somewhat disconnected from reality conversation about spending and and deficits, she was the only one who pointed out that massive deficits were created under the Trump years pre-pandemic. There was a disconnect on taxes too. Nobody wanted to talk about the relationship between the Trump tax cut and the deficits, but that's okay. She pointed that out, which Joe Biden then retweeted. So that's a problem. Second thing is she said Donald Trump's the most unpopular politician in America, which got her booed, but nevertheless is something that is true in the context in which she was saying it and not likely to make her a big winner with the MAGA crowd and therefore maybe not its leader. I also would guess if I were Nikki Haley and I were thinking about my long-term political future, it is very dubious to assume that being Trump's running mate is something that would enhance my career. It didn't do much for Mike Pence. It does seem to, you have to eat a lot of shit sandwiches and, and then at the end he casts you aside. So I don't know why she would make her bet there. Ramaswamy on the other hand did appear to be clearly also wanting to have that role. You make a great point. Last vice president for Donald Trump had people saying, let's hang him. You know, there's a, There's a safety issue there. And I'll just jump in now that I've got the mic on Ramaswamy. Absolutely improved his situation when everybody hates you on stage. Some people will start to take note and his name ID is his issue. But I think he also showed that he probably has a pretty tight ceiling. I don't think his behavior was universally loved, though it will be loved by some people. And I think he has some, you know, some of the things he did were a little too cute, claiming that he, you know, everybody was using mint, you know, prepackaged lines and then <laughs> using prepackaged line again and again and again and again throughout the debate. I mean, he has a ceiling, right? Like clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought his appeal sort of wore over the course of the evening. It is weird the way these three, the three front runners, Trump, 
DeSantis and Ramaswamy, and I use all, that term loosely as applied to DeSantis and Ramaswamy, all basically have personality disorders. They, they're they all people you just wouldn't want to spend any human time with a, in a way that is unsettling to me, which I don't feel about the other candidates, and I definitely have not felt about Democratic candidates recently. But there is this reward for that kind of personality disorder in the Republican Party right now, because the alphaness is kind of like hyper, like this this performative macho assholery is seen as authentic, is seen as somehow like the value the country wants to represent or the party wants to represent. And that's weird. Why do you guys think, and just to continue in that, Emily, is DeSantis' problem just that he is not fun the way Ramaswamy and Trump are fun? That he's an asshole, but Trump's an asshole. Like there's something about the guy that you just, John, you predicted this months ago where you were sort of saying, let's see what happens when he actually starts to campaign. Yes. John was like, everyone thinks he's so great, but like as soon as you actually have to like hang out with him for 10 minutes, you're going to change your mind. So why? Yes. You tell us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm happy to, to have stumbled onto something that turned out to be true, but you know, well, that's true of any candidate, right? You have to wear well. Ramaswamy, it's interesting. He's spent more time in Iowa, more visits to Iowa than any other candidate, and he's not doing as well in Iowa as he is in other places, nationally, or even I think in New Hampshire. So there there may be a little familiarity with him, may not be a big, a total winner for his candidacy too. So that's a, he may have a, a problem, as David, you suggest. DeSantis seems like if you read his answers on paper, they'd be pretty strong. You know, he did stuff. He actually took actions that led to outcomes that conservative or, or Republican voters would like. He talked about his military service. He made a good case for sort of getting the job done, which is a a, a super distant but somewhat passive aggressive attack on Donald Trump, who ran a chaos presidency just from a mere just from a sheer getting things done perspective. So on paper, it would look good, but it, it looked like he kept having to remind himself to smile. And I think that 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 can unsettle people more than a smile often makes them feel warm. There's, there's someone had this anecdote about how in his 2018 debate, his debate coach made him write on top of all of his notes and block letters, the word likable, which is oh. like be likable, which I think it's, it's one of these things, which is like when you tell people to calm down, it has the exact opposite effect. You cannot tell people to calm down. You cannot tell someone to be likable. Like you can be likable or you cannot be likable, but you cannot force likability. I feel like you have to try, though, if you're on a debate stage. The poor man. Emily, I think there is this there is this question about whether Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, the two most Trump skeptical candidates on the stage, would be able to score any points, would be able to make any difference, do any damage to Trump. Did you get the sense that they accomplished anything? Uh, you know, not really. I thought Christie was sort of surprisingly ineffective. I mean, he got pissed off at Ramaswamy at one point, but I didn't think that he really landed the blow. Like I sort of expected that Ramaswamy was going to be filleted in front of me and it just didn't really happen. And then he just got booed a lot. Like it's not a popular stance to be like the person standing up to Donald Trump right now on that stage. And so, yeah, I felt like I could sort of hear the music of him being waltzed out. I'd like also to get your thoughts about the abortion conversation. They made it seem like basically abortion at nine months was something you could get like in a Walmart. I mean, they made it seem like that so that you can talk, you can fact check and talk about that. But not in a Walmart because Blue America won't allow Walmarts, John. They could get it at a Whole Foods. I want to go back to a p- point I've made before. Usually in a primary, candidates stretch and strain to find any way to attack their opponent. And here with Donald Trump, there is an array of weaponry laid out. You have to trip over it to get to the debate stage. And it's not just about what happened in the past. Let's imagine for a moment you didn't want to engage in anything that Donald Trump, holding him accountable for anything he did in the past in any of the four cases in which he's been indicted. He's asking to be reelected. He's asking to be rewarded for his behavior. And that is a perfectly reasonable thing to talk about at a debate, even though they were somewhat apologetic about it, everybody engaged. And then secondly, he believes the last election was stolen, despite all of the legal claims, all of the failed lawsuits, and the many, 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 many different investigations. So that leaves you with one of two options. You want to reward with a second term a person who is either so delusional in the face of all those facts that he still believes something and you want to give a person who is capable of that kind of delusion power, 
or he's really kidding and he doesn't really believe it, but he's holding that posture because he thinks it'll make him win, in which case he's perpetrating an extremely big fraud with something that's super sensitive in the American system. And to reward him, again, distinct from punishing him for what he did in the past, to reward him with four more years when those are the only two options available seems like uh, not the way you'd want to go. Staying on the Trump topic, John, he did this counter-programming interview with Tucker Carlson that ran on X. God, I don't think I've ever said X out loud. It ran on X. What did you make of this interview, which didn't, it seemed odd, mostly because they talked about Trump's possible assassination. Kind of casually, Carlson brought that up. Oh, then they could kill you next. It was really weird, that moment. Well, it, you know, Wish is the father of the thought on the Civil War talk and the violence talk. It felt like it had a lot of that going on. I had previously thought, and I, I admit I watched the actual debate among the candidates as opposed to the counter-programming, but I thought, I thought at one point this might have been something that Democrats in the end would have been grateful for, which is to say that Donald Trump will probably have said something. And I think he did when he talked about love in the audience on January 6th, you know, will say things that will come back to to remind everybody of the challenge of having him be president again. And I think he probably did. So in that sense, it was a good night also for Democrats. I mean, I think it's just more proof that the person who wants to be the head of the Republican Party did two things to undermine that party. He won't sign the pledge that he would support anybody else, which which is not just about supporting other people, but it's about saying that basically the party rules are meaningless. And secondly, he took an opportunity for, these are big fundraisers for the parties. This is the way the party generates energy and money and momentum and makes everybody feel good. And he denied them their marquee person at a marquee event, which is another kind of knock for the party. So it's just a reminder that this is Donald Trump's world and the Republican Party is just participating in it. Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? Stick around for a bonus segment. Today, we're going to be talking about calendar invitations. Believe me, you do not want to miss this. Sounds like a kind of bizarre, random topic <laughs> it's because we got into a started to get into a quite heated discussion about this before the show. And we thought this heated discussion would make a great Slate Plus segment. So we're going to make that our Slate Plus segment later today. It's a kind of kind of casual conversation. <laughs> That is gold in Gabfest world. <laughs> maybe. Um, but this segment is just for Slate Plus members. Not maybe. It'll be great. <laughs> yes, it will be great. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you. Because of your support, we have been able to keep the Gabfest going for so many years. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, we would love it if you signed up. You'll get bonus segments on every episode of the Gabfest, as well as many other Slate podcasts. You'll get special discounts to our live show, like the live show we're doing in Madison. You won't hit the paywall at the Slate site. You'll get a lot more. So if you're a member, again, thank you. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Legal America is a buzz about an article in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review by two conservative legal scholars that argues that Trump is de facto ineligible for the presidency based on a pretty obscure clause of the 13th Amendment, Section 3 which was passed to disqualify Confederates, former Confederate officers and Confederate leaders from coming back and serving in federal office. It says that no person who has taken an oath as an officer of the United States can hold office if they have, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So, Emily, what do Michael Stokes Paulson and William Bode, who are the two legal scholars who wrote this, what do they argue? Why are the people excited about it? Are you excited about it? I'm not so excited about it. So Bode and Paulson are originalists. They're like card-carrying members of the Federalist Society, which is part of why this has gotten attention. And so they're looking back at the original meaning of this clause, what did Congress intend? And they think that this notion of insurrection or rebellion is very broad. The Congress was not just, first of all, trying to prevent former Confederates from holding office in the United States, but envisioned this going forward, applying in other contexts and other times. And also that insurrection and rebellion does not mean that you get convicted of a crime of insurrection or a crime of rebellion, that it's a judgment that that well, this is the tricky part. Whose judgment is it exactly? Because it's weirdly self-executing, this clause. It doesn't say that you have to have even Congress have a judgment that you did this. It says that Congress can remove the barrier to serving in office with a two-thirds vote. 
And so what Will and Michael Paulson are saying is that when you look at what Congress intended at the time, there should be a lot of conduct that could count as an insurrection or rebellion, and that that very much squarely includes Trump's conduct, especially involving January 6th itself, but, you know, also like all the other various overturning of the election shenanigans that he has been indicted for. And so in their view, it doesn't matter one whit what he's actually been charged with and not convicted for. What matters is the kind of sweeping notion of this clause and its self-executing quality. You know, as a theoretical originalist argument, like there's a lot of merit to it. I mean, I trust them as like rigorous scholars. There's a kind of problem for their argument, which is that one of the only contemporary readings of the clause is by Justice Salmon P. Chase. He's one of those people like I only ever see his name with his middle initial. So right. as not the <laughs> right. So Salmon P. Chase, he was the chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time. We're talking about, you know, the 1860s after the Civil War, but he also served as an appeals court judge. He rode circuit, as they said at the time. And so in that capacity, he issued an opinion that narrowed the application of this clause by saying that it wasn't self-executing, that basically there had to be some kind of finding of guilt. Will and Michael Paulson say that this is not a convincing opinion. They kind of dismiss it as poorly reasoned. I think that makes sense that it's poorly reasoned, but it's a problem for them that like the precedent from the time is at odds with their argument. And so I mean, first of all, the thing about originalist readings is they're not about like practical application or the consequences of doing what they're suggesting. They're just about like what was Congress thinking in the 1860s. I'm not a big fan of constitutional interpretation that kind of stops there. In my view, the notion of this, you know, preventing Trump from running from office when we've never used it that way before just seems like it could cause enormous and legitimate disturbance among Trump supporters. Like it would just seem like a kind of procedural trick to them. Now, that's not what this article is about, but I think the way the article is being kind of picked up on by some other liberals and like waved around right now, like, I don't know, that seems kind of dangerous to me. Like what kind of precedent are you setting for disqualifying other people from office with this like very amorphous definition of what counts as insurrection or rebellion? What do you guys think? I don't feel myself scholarly enough or knowledgeable enough to know the merits of this. I agree that as a test case, this is an awfully dangerous place to go because it definitely will not succeed and it will cause a lot of rage. And I guess my question for John is, does the fact that his that this claim has now been made, this has now been posited, guarantee that it's now going to be tested? Are we certain now that some liberal secretary of state won't try to knock Trump off the Maryland ballot or some voter in Ohio won't sue to, to require the secretary of state of Ohio to keep Trump off the Ohio ballot. Does speaking this out loud mean that it is now real and we're going to have to have it fought out? Or is it possible that people are just not going to bother with it because they're going to realize it's not going to succeed? I think it's a great question. And I guess I, what I would feel is just to, to the specifics of that question, it feels very likely that somebody will, if not do it, will prepare the ground to do it for the following reasons, not that they would win necessarily, but that to do so would keep it in the conversation. And therefore, what that centers in the conversation is that Donald Trump participated in a months-long effort to overthrow an election and that that is an act of rebellion and that that should disqualify him. Now, you would say, well, there's been a little bit of a discussion about that in the news since he's being been indicted for that to which the response is yes, and his poll numbers have gone up within his own party, but that this suit and discussion of it kind of center on the main question. You don't get maybe lost in the sides. It's basically just this central thing, which is he's asking to be rewarded for this behavior. It's not just about punishment of the past. So you could see somebody seeing a political benefit to having this in the conversation, whether it's in a legal context where it's debated about whether it's the person who ends up raising it has standing or whether it's just the way we're discussing it right now. And I think Michael Ludig and Lawrence Tribe wrote a bounce-off article in The Atlantic. I think it's there's going to be a lot of this conversation going around, and I think it's not great for somebody who's going to have to run in general election 
to have this question and to have it rooted in that time period and in these scholars. It's not that it will win the day, but I think it's just one more piece of sand in the gears. Also, wasn't wasn't Chase the chief justice who provided presided over the impeachment of John Andrew Johnson? Yeah, I think that's right. Emily, I know you're skeptical of this, but can you just game out the liberal fantasia here? So secretary of state in blue state bars Trump from the ballot. What then happens that gets this disposed of and determined finally? This is a Supreme Court decision, ultimately. I mean, there's a few routes for it to get to the Supreme Court. The kind of cleanest lawsuit is that someone running against Trump sues and says this person is disqualified. That candidate, I think, pretty clearly has standing. Alternatively, yeah, I guess a like blue state secretary of state or election official could announce that Trump was not going to be on the ballot. And this is like a weird idea, right? That that judgment of that state official would determine that this is the meaning of this clause. And then obviously Trump would sue or someone would sue on his behalf and it would go up to the Supreme Court. Ned Foley, who's a law professor at NYU, writes a lot about elections law. His proposal was that a blue state should pass a law clearly giving authority to the secretary of state like official to do something like this. And Ned's point is that this should all get resolved sooner rather than later, that if it's going to linger out there, it's really important that it not not come up after the election if Trump is elected, that we need to resolve this sooner. Like I said, I'm skeptical of the whole thing, but I wonder what you both make of that idea of the timing, like that this should be resolved soon now that it's been raised, or are we just better off if it just lingers out there as a kind of like idea in the, you know, legal academy and elsewhere, as opposed to like an actual weapon that an elected official picks up? Well, I guess it depends whether you're thinking kind of from policy perspective or political perspective. I kind of feel like leaving leaving these fantasies out there is sort of dangerous. I'd like to have it like adjudicated in some way. On the other hand, if it is a blue state that does this, then it's a sort of it launches the gambit and therefore stirs the hornet's nest, if I can throw out a lot Ooh, of- mixing um, some metaphors there. Yeah, yeah. Let's see if we can get a third one in here. To, but I, I think it, you know, it agitates and it looks like, as you, I think, wisely said, Emily, it looks like you're trying to go around the process, to which a liberal, of course, would say, well, fine, but he tried to go around the process. But then the problem is it becomes, by trying to do this, in the mind of the person paying only scant attention- it's like, well, Trump tried to go around the process. Now they're trying to go around the process. Well, I guess it's all equal now. Just And you can say, well, no, because the press will make clear that these are two different situations. One is trying to go through the legal system with a reasoned arguments, which is the right way to handle disputes in the American system. And then there's the wrong way, which is what Trump did, which is to go outside the system and that those are not only not similar, they are diametrically opposed. Gotcha. Not sure everyone else will. Do you guys think as a matter of, justice and a matter of precedent, a matter of constitutional law, that Trump should not be allowed to run for president. I mean, the Constitution says that people who engaged in insurrection and rebellion are not qualified to run for president. Are you persuaded, like, regardless of the kind of the political wisdom of bringing such a charge at the moment, regardless of whether you think it would succeed with the Supreme Court, are you persuaded by the moral case here? Well, so... Okay, so I was going to give you a legalistic answer about the definition of insurrection and rebellion and how I would rather stick to a relatively narrow definition of that for disqualifying people, because I I think mostly we should settle these things in the political system. And so personally, without like a conviction for insurrection, this does not interest me. But morally speaking, no, I don't think that Trump should be running for president because of what he did. I mean, he did try to overthrow our election. The problem with that is the good remedy for that in our system would have been the Senate impeaching him in January, you know, those many months ago, because that's the tool the Constitution gives to the other branches to create exactly this kind of discipline and penalty. And it's that failure that I think we're all paying for now. And absent that impeachment and that disqualification at that moment, I think this is in the hands of the voters. Is this a position one can hold or is it meaningful or useful to hold the position where one says morally he spent more than two months trying to overthrow an election and that that is 
an act of rebellion and that it led to, and then he did nothing after the actual attack happened. And therefore, that disqualifies him from the office. He's in the job to protect the Constitution. He tried to undermine it, as Mike Pence argued at the debate on Wednesday night. Can you argue that that's that morally that's the case? But then, in the purpose of this discussion, say, but it shouldn't be acted on. And and it shouldn't be acted on. Why? Like, I guess, what's the rationale? It shouldn't be acted on for the for the way for the reason you said, Emily, which is that while it may be, you know, there's an act of discretion in all in in the execution of all laws, or and so in this case because it would be interpreted as an extrajudicial, even again, as I said previously, it would be through the legal system. Nevertheless, in this moment we are having in politics with the tonnage of disinformation and the amount of siloing, that it is a that it's a shot you don't want to take because even if you succeed, that there's the it has a chance to break something irrevocably and perhaps excite a violent response. And that while that may be regrettable, the discretion of those who who would go down this route is not something that they are relieved of having to think about. I think, Emily, I agree with your point that it, that the moment to deal with it, and there was directly a moment to deal with it with, with that impeachment, which would have effectively, I think it literally would have barred Trump. No, it would running. have disqualified him, literally. Yes, and that's the tragic loss and the tragic moment here. I also worry about this. This is a kind of classic plots ignorant take is that you know how when you some, sometimes you hear about some country that's in the news that you haven't heard of before that's having an election and or the country you pay no attention to but you're hearing they're having an election it's a controversial election and then you learn that some candidate on the ballot has been disqualified they're always disqualifying people on the ballot you know you're in in some places that are very fragile democracies in hungary they've disqualified this or that person from the ballot in poland and in russia they were always disqualifying when putin would have elections he disqualified people from the ballot and it always felt to me like a characteristic of the fragile weak democracy is is weaponizing uh, ballot expulsion and i would prefer that this country not go down that route i would prefer that we be a country where there's a lot of latitude about who gets to run for office and and we don't use procedural methods to keep people from running for office because that just seems like it takes takes countries down the wrong path. I mean, I guess one other answer I'd give to your question, John, is that if it was cut and dry clear legally, then I think, yes, it would be a cop out. But I don't think it's cut and dry, in part because we've never done it before. And any kind of moral basis for disqualifying someone seems like it's, you could argue it one way or the other way, right? It's like by nature, not really cut and dry, and people are going to have deep and abiding disagreements. And so once you're in a world in which it's not obvious, I think you can very much make the argument in the opposite direction, that this is a place where you'd want to be extremely restrained in applying a penalty like this. And actually, it doesn't really make any sense. And I'm kind of stealing from another law professor, Eric Siegel here, who was responding to the Bode-Paulson argument with a sort of, you know, legal realist take, which is like a common position for Eric to take. And he was just like, look, have you guys thought about what this would actually look like? And also remember, this Supreme Court while it sometimes claims to be originalist, is extremely selective in its application of that theory. And it's very hard to imagine them disqualifying Trump in these circumstances. And and maybe that's better for the democracy in the long run. We were all captivated by a column in the Washington Post from Catherine Rampell, the economics writer, about a new working paper from Maxime Masenkoff of the Naval Postgraduate School and Nathan Wilmers of the MIT Sloan School of Management. And Masenkov and Wilmers looked at a ton of geolocation data to try to figure out where Americans come into contact with people from different income classes than themselves, if they do come into contact at all. And what they found was that we mix really infrequently. Rich and poor and middle go to different kinds of stores and places and institutions. And even the kinds of places that seem to be universal, like a park or the CVS, 
to name one good example, CVS seems universal, but it's actually less universal because while everyone goes to the CVS, people tend to go to the one in their neighborhood. And since we're residentially segregated, we don't cross paths with people who are different than us in an actual CVS because we're going to the CVS in our neighborhood and the person of who's richer or poorer than us is going to CVS in a different neighborhood. But there is one place above all others where Americans cross paths with others who are not like them. What is that place, Emily Bazelon? It is Olive Garden and Applebee's and Chili's. In other words, very specific chain restaurants at which the pricing, the menu, just various things about them make them places that appeal to people across income brackets. And the baby back, baby back, baby back ribs, obviously. <laughs> Um, so here's my, like, my, the, my, there were so many distressing things about these findings. Just the lack of mixing across class is really, I think, bad for the country. And I found the Applebee's Olive Garden Chili is part of it depressing in itself because you don't necessarily talk to other people when you go to a restaurant. Like, yeah, you might be sitting near them and notice something about them, but it's not the same as being in a park or a library, even the post office, where you might actually have some social interaction, right? I mean, do you guys talk to other people, other patrons in restaurants, like have any kind of real conversation with them? Nope. You guys may know this about me, but I'm the kind of person who likes to spend a lot of time in public places kind of just opening myself up to, to really whatever anybody wants to talk about <laughs> at length. Right. And, when you're uh, invited to dinner with John, you're lucky if he wants to talk to you. And in fact, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he might not. Having said this, having said that, yeah, if you're dining by yourself, like it's actually quite, I mean, this is what I used to do when I was on the road all the time is not, I mean, I'm not sure that I went to Applebee's, Olive Garden and Chili's that much, but a lot of times I did, I mean, you know, or an Outback Steakhouse or a, because there's, here's a crucial thing about being on the road and why a lot of people probably like it is that this, the mass produced nachos are within a narrow band, right? You're going to you know what you're getting. They're, they're never going to be too great, but they're never going to be too bad. You know what you're getting. And yeah, you do have conversations. They're not deep, meaningful plumbing of the depths of things. But I mean, I still, your general point is of course, right. I mean, it's not like, you know, church or something where you're really exchanging updates on the most important things in your life, your kids, your parents, and all that stuff. I'm not a frequenter of Applebee's or Chili's, Olive Garden, or IHOP. I mean, I, I've been to them, of course, but I don't regularly go to them. But I was, th when I read the article, I was thinking, you know, there's so many great moments in the culture where we see how this works, where in fact, if you look at popular culture, these places are seen as the crossroads places. And I'm just, I just quickly thought, if you guys seen the show Jury Duty? No, but it sounds good. There's a wonderful scene where all the jurors uh, in this case end up going to a Margaritaville, which is a another chain restaurant. I like that chain. And crossing paths with a bunch of white nationalists. There's the show Platonic I just watched, where there's this guy who's a kind of indie, really proudly independent brewer who only wants to make beer for the kind of elites and for people who love beer. And then he realizes, actually, I need to make beer for everybody. And he goes to work for a chain restaurant because going to work for the chain restaurant is the chance. Going to work for the Applebee's is the chance to make a difference. Or in Friday Night Lights, there's this, the TV show, there's this fantastic subplot where Tyra, who's this girl in this small town in Texas, is a waitress at Applebee's and she meets the kind of cool out-of-towner who comes in when he, she serves him and they strike up a romance. And so I love the idea of this as somehow that it's true, but I think I came back to the point that you came back to, Emily, which is actually we don't really, even if we're there together, we don't really interact. And that's just points to the larger problem in American life, which is that we are segregated in all the meaningful ways that we can be segregated from people who don't earn like us and look like us and consume like us. And not in school, not in church, not in work, do we meet people who are different. And that's a tragedy. This is why sport and hardware stores and the DMV to a certain extent are all useful because you can have with sport, you can have cross all kinds of cross socioeconomic range conversations. Although of course, stadiums have learned how to price tickets and all that so that it keeps people segregated. But the interest in the local team is one thing, but also the hardware store and the DMV, you have a common challenge, right? I mean, the hardware store has its own tension because when you walk in there, if you don't know what you need, 
you might be outed as a person who doesn't know what they need and that can cause you issues. So you might not mix as much, but if you go in with a low ego, you can kind of talk things through with your fellow shoppers who tend to be from all ranges, especially if it's a central hardware store where you got a lot of people coming through who are subcontractors and stuff who are buying. So uh, everybody needs to do more do-it-yourself home projects. I'm going to continue to go for the park as the best mixing place because people are outside. They kind of bump into each other in interesting ways. Like pets are a big cause of mixing. Lots of people of different class backgrounds have dogs. And I feel like my dog makes me talk to so many people. And if you have a park that has mixed use that different kinds of people use, like it's actually a place where you can end up striking up an, a real conversation or just having some kind of interaction that feels like it's human. I wonder if they had looked, and I don't think they do in this report, if they had looked at race, not just income groups, if they looked at different racial groups, whether you would see exactly the same failure to interact. Like do black and white Americans interact as little as people of different economic classes interact? Or is it not as stark? My guess would be that it would still be a real difference. It might be slightly less. But on the other hand, I'm thinking of that data showing that middle class Black Americans are more likely to live in low income neighborhoods than, right, like that there's a way in which race tracks class even sort of beyond its actual like direct correlation with class. So maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe actually it would be just as stark. John, to end this segment, you're a hopeful person and you, I think all, I think all of us, we've talked, I mean, one of the, I would say abiding themes of the GabFest over 17 years is this sense that we've become this nation of many different Americas that don't connect with each other. And we see that most grotesquely in our partisan politics, but we see it in other things and how we worship and how we work and in where we live and where our kids go to school. Are there any ways that we can overcome these barriers that seem to be so high that every day that that wall, it seems to be an inch or two higher than it was the day before? That's a great, really great question. I should note that I want to go back and read a book called Applebee's America, which was written by Matthew Dowd, who's a pollster for George W. Bush, Doug Sosnick, who was a Clinton advisor, and Ron Fournier, who was a former AP political reporter. It was back in 2004 or five, I think, that they wrote it. And essentially, their argument was, Ameri if you want to know how to succeed in America, connect, whether you're a politician, a corporate person, or a religious leader, you go to an Applebee's and understand Applebee's approach to, to America. And I, uh, so that'd be interesting to match th their theory with this data. To your point, David. So on the one hand, you could say, well, religion would call people because if, if you're a Christian as I am, despite how the religion is misappropriated by other people, it's pretty clear what the basic thing is, which is basically love other people, be in communion and, with other people, be easy on other people and, and think they're operating in good faith. Like all the things that I, are very hard for me, but it basically says love, like go out in the world and love. And I've, I've obviously seen that in my life. However, the most, you know, the old line, the most segregated place in America is the churches on Sunday. So that has a limited utility as a way to build social cohesion of the kind you're talking about, David. I do actually think that, or I wonder whether you could sustain an argument that is actually not. I was making a joke earlier about how we all needed to go to watch professional sports. And oh, by the way, soccer is really interesting in this context. I heard two guys having a conversation. One was a like hardcore, multiple generation New Yorker, and another was a recent immigrant. And they were talking about soccer. You would not have expected these two to have a conversation. And they were having it about soccer. And I thought, huh, this is a way. So I think an intelligent person with deft writing could make the case for participation in certain kinds of public events for the purposes of mixing and creating this interaction that you're talking about, David, as a larger social good that also turns out to be like, turns out sports is fun or, you know, building stuff is fun or whatever the thing is you would argue might draw people together. All right. And an exit, I would just commend people to listen to the song by Walker Hayes called Fancy Like, which is all about his girlfriend who, when he wants a treat, takes her to Applebee's on date night. And the description of being fancy like Applebee's on date night are so great. And it's such a wonderful, charming, delightful country song. Let's go to cocktail chatter when 
you are on a date night, John Dickerson, with the delightful Mrs. Dickerson. What are you going to be chattering to her about as you sip some sort of benign cocktail? I will be chattering about Jason Isbell, the rock and roller, who I had the pleasure of interviewing. I, I hesitated because not all interviews are pleasurable. But so I interviewed him for a show that's going to air later. But he, Jason Isbell and the 400 unit have an album out called, called Weather Veins, which is interesting, which is very good and bears close inspection, particularly with the lyrics. And I won't ruin that for you. But also in preparation for the interview, I watched the documentary about Jason and his wife, Amanda Shires, who is a virtuoso violinist um, and musician herself. The, the documentary is called, it's running, called Running With Our Eyes Closed. And it is, a, it is extremely raw. It's really well done. It, it has so many little moments that are, has very big, has very big moments, but it also has just these little touches all kinds of different ways that are just it's really worth really really worth watching so and also by the way with with respect to our content conversation about small towns and our interview with barbara kingsolver there are two songs on this most recent album which are very complex about coming from a small town as jason does he comes from a very small town so if you're interested in that kind of art that tries to get at what being from a small town is a light is like i would recommend that to you as well. The two songs you're looking for in that context are Volunteer and Cast Iron Skillet. Emily, what's your chatter? I want to alert listeners to a potential issue in the RICO case against Trump in Georgia, which I hope is not going to come up, but it's kind of lingering out there as a potential threat to the prosecution, which is that Georgia recently passed a law that creates this new commission. It's called the Prosecuting Attorneys Qualifications Commission. And it gives a lot of discretion to a new commission to take power away from local prosecutors. Okay. So the commission, it's not even entirely up to Governor Kemp in Georgia who would serve on this commission. The lieutenant governor and the state legislature also have power to appoint some of the people. And already, um, state senator, a Republican in Georgia, has talked about using this commission against Fonnie Willis, who, of course, is the Fulton County district attorney who is prosecuting former President Trump. This idea that you're going to have this kind of state mechanism for wresting control away from local prosecutors who've been elected by the people they represent, it's a looming issue. It's come up in Texas. It came up last night in the Republican debate where Ron DeSantis was congratulating himself from suspending from office two elected prosecutors, one in Miami and one in Orlando. He's using a particular clause in Florida law that gives the governor a great deal of discretion to do this. It's just like one to watch this idea that we're going to take the power away from local voters in cities and give it to Republican elected officials at the state level. Um, a bunch of red states are flirting with this. And if it becomes a real issue in this case against Trump, that would really be remarkable. I'm chattering about an actual cocktail. And I use the term cocktail loosely, as you'll discover in a second. So I read this wonderful story in the Washington Post about a new product from Ego, the waffle maker called Brunch in a Jar. And it's a drink that begins with a rum-infused Appalachian sipping cream. And then it is infused with flavor of toasted Eggo waffle, sweet maple syrup, and rich butter, and a hint of smoky bacon. This is the drink that Eggo is now making called Brunch in a Jar. And the idea is that this is something that you can have on a Sunday morning, maybe in concert with your actual Eggo waffle, but it sounds just extraordinary. And the, what this article also pointed out is that there's this wave of extremely unlikely new cocktails that are based on American food products. So there is a French fry flavored vodka from Arby's, Oreo Thins wine, there's a Hellman's Mayo Nog, <laughs> and a Velveeta Martini. Can we, as a legal question, Emily, what kind of, is it a misdemeanor or an actual <laughs> felony you have to commit to get punished by having to drink these? Felony, definitely felony. I tried a mustard flavored Skittles about a month ago, and I'm still having trouble overcoming that. Yuck. On the other hand, I had maybe the best new snack food I've ever had that the Cheez-Its now has Cheez-Its snapped, which are these very thin Cheez-Its. Incredibly delicious. So mock American innovation 
at your peril, John Dickerson. Mock these people <laughs> who are pioneers of the cocktail form at your peril. This is how progress happens. Right. Yeah, but you like Doritos. I don't know. I like Doritos you. like all normal people. I like Doritos. Yes, exactly. Like healthy humans. <laughs> like every person with a pulse. I like a Dorito. Yeah. Also, I want to chatter about, just a reminder, there's a CityCast DC anniversary party. So if you're in DC on Monday, August 28th, this coming Monday, come join us for a party at Sunny's Pizza at five o'clock. There'll be a wine tasting. And then we're going to do a live CityCast DC taping our daily local podcast for DC. Hosts Michael Schaefer and Bridget Todd are going to be there. I'm going to be there. It's going to be really fun. So come join us. We'll put a link to the RSVP in the show notes. Listeners, you've got chatters. Oh boy, do you have chatters. And you keep emailing to us at gabfestislate.com. You tweet them to us, things that are grabbing you. And this week's listener chatter is about meatloaf, the singer, not the food. And the chatter is Leonie from Dublin. Hi Gabfest, Leonie here from the big smoke of Dublin, Ireland. My chatter is a delightful story by Ronan Casey about a down-on-his-luck meatloaf, his 1989 tour of Ireland's less-than-ostentatious rural venues, and all the re-raw ox rula that ensued. Night after night of rowdy drunken fans crammed into community centres, ballrooms and even sheds diminished meatloaf's patience, and the testier meatloaf got, the more creative and persistent the improvised stage missiles from the crowd became, culminating in a flying wheelchair, a riot, and an epic act of heroism. I hope you enjoy this fabulous yarn as much as I did. Berbua Agspanacht, may victory and blessings be yours. That's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jared Downing this week with help from Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. You can tweet chatter to us there or email it to us at gabfest at slate.com. Please join us on October 25th for our live show in Madison, Wisconsin. We can't wait to see you there. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. We had a really serious Slate Plus topic queued up. We'll save it for another day. But as we sat down to record, there was a question about why it is that John and Emily can never <laughs> find the link okay. to our recording session. We use a program called Riverside, and there's a Riverside link that we need every week so that we can all log on to this chat. And I said to John and Emily, it's just in the calendar invitation. And John and Emily were like, what? What are you talking about? I don't even know no. what you're talking about. Calendar? Calendar? Emily. I've got that pinned no, to my wall. Like we didn't of, know what you were talking about. We just don't animals. like it. I feel like the counselor, I feel like you are framing this, this narrative in a way that best advantages you, us, but carry on. I just want that yeah. stipulated by the court. We're not, we weren't being Luddites in the manner you were describing. We were being anti-calendar, not know-nothing calendar. In any case, as we started, as this conversation continued, it it became clear that we had a divide among in the Gabfest, and that divide is there. There's a normal person. That person is me, who believes that one way to get people to show up to things and to know that something exists is to send them an electronic calendar invitation that they can add to their electronic calendar. As that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation. Go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.